may be seated. We praise God for Jesus Christ. Um, that our sins, they, they are many, as that other song we sing sometimes says, our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. When we think about justice, when we think about righteousness, we realize that our nation falls short of the standards of God's perfection. We realize that our nation and indeed our world is under God's judgment. Doesn't matter what excuses we make, it doesn't matter what sort of what aboutery we engage in, what sort of denials or deflections we practice. We will always fall short of the righteousness of God and thereby fall short of the glory of God. But there is mercy in Jesus Christ. And so we come to Jesus for cleansing. We come to Him for covering. He covers us with His righteousness and He washes away our sins and He brings us into the presence of God and He keeps us there. And I hope that this morning's message will further encourage you with that truth this morning. Locate in your Bibles the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah and the 8th chapter. Instead of reading all 23 verses of this chapter at the beginning, I'm simply going to isolate a portion of the chapter. And today and Lord willing, next week, we are going to use just two phrases as a lens through which to understand this chapter. I hope it will be memorable to you. Verse 13, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 13. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands Be strong. And I think that as we look at this chapter today and Lord willing next week, there are two things that bind it all together. Uh, The words, I will save you. And you'll notice maybe your translation says, so will I save you. It's the same thing. I've just made it um, uh, grammatically Uh, more straightforward for us to, to recall. God is saying to us, first, I will save you. Can we say that together? It'd be good if we memorized that. I will save you. Again, I will save you. So, so, God says to His people, I will save you. But that is not only all that He says, the other theme of this chapter and indeed the theme of this book and indeed the theme of all of Scripture is after being comforted by the promise that God will save His people, we have the 
application of that, the implication of that, I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Sometimes there are people who focus on I will save you. And they neglect that God calls them to be a blessing. And indeed, not only does God call them to be a blessing, He commands them to be a blessing. And in fact, He promises that those whom He has saved will be a blessing. And so we cannot, we cannot say God will save us and talk all about Jesus and talk all about the cross and talk all about His righteousness and give ourselves a pass for our sin, for our unrighteousness, for our inactivity and spiritual slothfulness and laziness and all of those things that afflict us that we should be casting away. No, we, we, we have to realize that because God says, I will save you, we will be a blessing. And there are some who want to, to focus on you shall be a blessing to the extent that they may even deny what it means for God to save us. What it means to be righteous, not in our own merits, not by our deeds that we have done, but by the goodness and, and grace of God in Jesus Christ. They might deny that Jesus is God with us. They might deny that, that Jesus gave His life as a propitiatory sacrifice. That is, a sacrifice that turns away the wrath and justice of God. They might deny that, that Jesus' sacrifice is about sin at all. But friends, He says, not only you will be a blessing, He says, I will save you. And we must have both of these. I will save you and you will be a blessing. Let's, we didn't memorize that second bit. Uh, I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Let's say you shall be a blessing together. You shall be a blessing. Once more, you shall be a blessing. So if I am a blessing and if you are a blessing... It is because God has saved you. I'm not, I'm not denying that there are people who are unsaved that God makes a blessing. He does. It's called common grace. He is kind to us through all sorts of channels. But a blessing, perhaps we've reduced it to something that is, is less than spiritual. Something that's nice. But a blessing is something more than nice. A blessing is, is something that's spirit. It affects all of life, but it's spiritually gifted from God upon us. And so, if you are a blessing as one who is saved by God, it is because you are saved by God. And if you are, if you are saved by God, then you will be a blessing. I hope that makes sense. Well, we're going to just focus on I will save you this morning. But I want, I want to, to propose to you this thought which follows on from what we were saying last week and which pulls together the whole of this chapter. It takes faith to feast. It takes faith to feast. Let's pray. And then we'll be thinking about that.
Father, in your mercy and in your grace, you have brought us together today. We thank you. We give you praise. We ask that your blessing would be upon us and upon the exposition of your word now, that you would teach us, train us, and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. It takes faith to feast. Perhaps you expect me to say more likely, it takes faith to fast. And you wouldn't be incorrect. In fasting, we deprive ourselves of food and drink as an act of prayerful spiritual devotion to God, an expression of our need for God to save, our need for God to satisfy, our need for Him to sustain us and uh, to, to, to help us and to provide for our needs. Fasting is something that is done urgently. We, we do not casually give up food. It is a physical cry of desperate spiritual dependency. To, to repentantly fight sin and to wage war against our flesh whilst seeking the Lord. That's, that's fasting. It's to humble ourselves before God. It is to seek God's will. It is to respond and to prepare ourselves to respond appropriately to His gifts and calling and His guidance into those things. Fasting, when it's understood properly as a worshipful exercise, not a dietary or medical regime, takes faith. But I meant what I said. It also takes faith to feast. Fasting might pray for the Lord's provision. Feasting acknowledges that God has provided for today. And believes that, because we're not just eating, we're feasting. It believes that He will provide tomorrow. And that He will provide the next day. And the day after that. Because this isn't just a meal, this is a feast. And you're, you're splurging, you're, you're going all out. God has provided not just our daily bread when we feast, but we're saying, I believe that God has provided my weekly bread. In fact, there are times and seasons of need where it, it may take more faith to feast than to fast. Does that make sense? Do you identify with that at all? That there are times if, if, if feasting is saying, I believe that God has provided today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, but, but you are in a season of need to feast is actually a lot more difficult to wrap your head around than fasting. Fasting seems more appropriate, more sensible, more safe. Lay aside the spiritual reasons. Uh, you might have been in a situation where you went without food one day. Not so much out of a spiritual exercise, but 
you, you went without food one day, so you knew you would have food the next. You had food the day before. You, you can put a gap in there and spread it out a bit. And there are those times where it's, it's not even so much a matter of need like that, but there's propriety. It just doesn't seem right to feast when others might be hungry or when others might be mourning or grieving or in need. And so when we think that way, our, our personal practice becomes one of extreme frugality that can look like poverty. And our posture toward others is characterized by scarcity instead of generosity. Think, think of it this way, dealing with a non-Christian man that I've known for quite a few years this week, and his, uh, he, he, he has several accounts and several investments, but one of his accounts dips below a certain number of money, uh, an amount of money. And it was an amount of money that generally no one that I know personally has to hand. And this was just one account. And the man was anxious. And he was saying, that doesn't look healthy. And it, it, it was all psychological because he had another account that had even more than that. And he wanted me to arrange a transfer for him from that account into the other just so the numbers looked more satisfying to him. He has plenty. He has had plenty. Speaking with a relative, that's been his practice throughout life. Someone gives him something and he'll say, I don't need, I don't need this or I don't want this. And so he'll just put it in the account, but it, he never uses, he hoards his things. And the idea of someone, you know, having, who, who looks after him turning on the gas heater in the winter and keeping it on all night for their comfort and their warmth. Shocking. To have a light on so that they can see the electricity bill's going to be a whopper. And, and you go, just go down the list and it, it, it's... What, what is going on? Well, that, that's more easy for me to understand from a non-believer, but from Christians who are supposed to, to have faith in God and who are supposed to let that faith drive our celebration of God and our, our generosity towards others, that kind of attitude is, is problematic. It's extreme. It's unhealthy. The present situation that we read in Zechariah chapter 8 of the people of Israel to whom Zechariah spoke does not lend itself to, 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 to feasting at all. To be honest, they probably didn't feel much like feasting. They had gradually begun to return from the exile. They, were they had been scattered for decades across the Babylonian Empire because of their sins. And the city that was once full of people still sits lonely even after they've begun to return. The streets are empty. The shops are shuttered. The shelves are empty. The economy is decimated. The elderly are dead or shut in. 
because it wasn't the safe place that it used to be. And what was there for, what, what was there for them to do anyway? Uh, you know, they would leave and all that they saw before them were reminders of what had been. Life was different. Life was, was not as it had been. And they dreamed of that life, but they couldn't exist comfortably in the present. And, and so they stayed in. Some didn't even make it to old age. The noise of children playing in the streets was gone. The people were weak and slow and increasingly less driven and active. They were more poor, more afraid, depressed, sad, hungry, lonely, and isolated from other cities and nations. Perhaps you, you see some parallels between that and uh, some of the stuff that we're seeing in our city today. But that's all from the book of Zechariah and, and the other books that describe their situation at this time. It sounds like a time for fasting. But in the text before us, the Lord speaks through His prophet that He is going to do more than revive true spiritual God-centered fasting among His people who are wearying of going through the motions of ritual obligation. He is going to take His people from fasting to God-centered fasting and beyond that to God-centered feasting. And we can have faith to feast today. How? Why? Because of the two truths with which we began that I hope we've memorized now. I will save you and you shall be a blessing. We can have faith to feast because God says, I will save you. I. It is personal. I will save you. Who is this I who will save His people? He is Yahweh. The personal name of, of God revealed to His people in covenant relationship. He's identified more though than just Yahweh in this passage. Yahweh in English is translated with Lord in all caps. But specifically as Yahweh of hosts, or Yahweh of armies, 18 times in this chapter alone. Zechariah has, uh, four, I believe it's 49 different usages. Yeah, 49 different usages of Lord of hosts or some parallel to that. But, but here in this one chapter, we have the great bulk of those. 18 times repeatedly he emphasizes the Lord of hosts is saying this. The Lord of hosts is going to do this. The Lord of hosts is the one who will save you. He is the Lord of armies. Angelic armies. Heavenly armies. Saintly armies. And indeed, He is sovereign as Lord over all of the armies of the earth. He is on the warpath for righteousness, for justice, for truth, and for peace. He is God over us. But you'll remember a few weeks ago I said He is also God with us. 
And He is also God for us. This is the One who will save you. And, and, and we'll see nothing less than those three things God is over us and with us and for us in this chapter. But to, to go through the whole chapter and to summarize, we see that He is a jealous God who loves His people and is with them. He is angry with all that is wrong and wicked. He is angry with all that is against Him and His people. He works marvels. He is faithful and righteous and plants Himself in our presence as a faithful and righteous King. He is judge and He's Savior. He is sovereignly purposeful, unrelenting in His plan, true, injustice and lie-hating, but peace-loving, the giver of joy and gladness, to be worshipped by cheerful feasting as much as mournful fasting. He is gracious and knowable. And there it is again at the conclusion of chapter 8. He is with His people. And when you think of I here in the, these words, I will save you, think particularly about that. The presence of the Lord. This, this Lord that I have described. This God who is called the Lord of armies. The sovereign creator of the world is with you. Chapter 8 verse 2 shows us that this God, the Lord of hosts, loves His people fiercely. He is, he says, jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. And, and, and that, that is to say, He loves His people and He wants His people. And, and, and that means He cannot leave them in their present situation. But they, they cannot save themselves to get to Him. So He is going to come to them. And read that in verse 3. He says... I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. When God comes to, to His people, when God is present with His people, what effect does that have? Yes, it assures of His, of his love. It assures us of His presence, you know, that He cares for us and that He's jealous for us with a wrathful jealousy and so no one else can take us. No one else can have us. We belong to Him. And He to us. But that, that has some, some changes that it makes for us because it specifically, verse 3, the second part, demonstrates it sets us apart. Specifically, it sets us apart in our identity. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now when Zechariah is preaching, it's lonely, empty, impoverished, isolated, derelict. Now its temple is under construction and underwhelming already and it's not even over. Now its walls are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. But God says of Jerusalem, 
I am going to set it apart as something beautiful, unique, treasured, and precious. This city that was called faithless by the prophets will be called faithful. This city that was brought down will be the mountain of God Himself to which people ascend for worship. That's what the presence of the Lord does. It sets His people apart in their identity. Those who are faithless are made faithful. Those who are low are lifted up. Those who were defined by their sin are defined by their Savior who now lives and dwells among them. But it's not only that His presence sets us apart in our identity, we also see that His presence secures us. Verses 4 through 8. We'll just read those. Uh, the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and w- old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. What sort of place has people living to old age and sitting in the streets? Children running up and down, laughing and playing in the streets? Well, I would say a safe place. A secure place. What sort of place do you take people who have been rescued after they were oppressed, kidnapped, enslaved, or exiled? Well, if you have any pastoral sensibility whatsoever, you would take them to a place of refuge a place of rest, and that place is a safe place, a secure place. The Lord secures His people. He doesn't just come to us and spend some time with us and and, and our identity is different, but He keeps us. This is who we are, and it's who we shall be. Because He is who He is. And He shall forever be. He brings us into that kind of union with Him by coming to us and being with us. That's good news, isn't it? We are set apart and secured by the Lord of hosts who comes to be with us. His presence with us sets us apart and it keeps us safe. We don't have to be afraid. Repeatedly, the text says that. Do not be afraid. Fear not. We don't have to be afraid anymore. Either of Him, 
because He's come to us as our friend. And we don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything else. Because as the Scripture says, Jesus Himself said, God who came to be with us said, nothing can take them out of My hand. As the Apostle Paul said, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're set apart and secured. But the verse through which we are looking at this chapter today says not only I, but it says I will. And so reflect with me not only on the presence of the Lord, but on the power of the Lord. It is, as I've said already, the Lord of hosts who is present with us. And it is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the sovereign Lord God who is in us and with us and for us. The text repeatedly calls Him the Lord of hosts. And to say that He is with us is to say that the sovereign, creating, covenant-making and keeping God of the universe who does not have simply some power, but all power is with us. Verses 3-5, through five, um, let's read those. Uh, we've already actually read those a, a moment ago. Um, they, they constitute a redemptive reversal whereby God looks at their present state and He turns it completely around. There were old men and women sitting in the streets. In fact, like I said earlier, were there even any old men or women? Those who were around weren't there to be seen. Children playing in the streets. Jerusalem, post-exile, was not a kid-friendly place. What is life if you don't have the beginning and the end? Where are those that will look after us and counsel us with their wisdom? Where are those that we are to look after? Indeed, those that we're to raise up to be a generation to follow us. Where is their hope? But God says there will be old men and women in the streets with staffs leaning on them sitting down, watching as the kids play. That's real. Let's not spiritualize that. God's saying He's going to bring His oppressed, enslaved, exiled people home. And He's not just going to bring them home to some geographical location. He is going to bring them back to a place where home really is home. It's not just a, 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 you know, a stopping place for the time being, but it's a resting place. And there's, there's so much good news in those words for those people. But verse 6, it shows us that He works marvels for His people. Things so marvelous that they're even marvelous in the eyes of the One who has done them. That something should be marvelous in God's eyes is incomprehensible to us. And that's what He wants us to get. That He is going to do things so marvelous that logically it doesn't make sense. 
He saves His people scattered to the east, scattered to the west, all around the world. And He says, they'll be My people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Verses 9-13 through continue to demonstrate God's power, contrasting where they were and in some ways where they still are and to where God is taking them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before these days, there was no wage. You heard that right? No wages. They weren't getting paid. There was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in For I set every man against his neighbor. No wages. No safety. Neighbors who violently hate or take advantage of each other. It sounds a bit like London. God says effectively also, I did that. So there's a real spanner in the works if we were thinking we could blame other people. God says, I did that. I afflicted the people in this way but he says, I'm not going to deal with them this way anymore. Verse 11, Now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. The heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. I will. He keeps saying it. The I will power of the Lord is what strengthens us. He says, does He not let your hands be strong? In verse 9. And He says it again at the conclusion of verse 13. Let your hands be strong. Why? Verse 9. For before, sorry, verse 10. For before those days... And then verse 11, but now. The before and the after give us strength for today. Before those days, we didn't have wages. But now, you'll have wages. Before those days, you weren't safe. But now, you will be safe. And bracketing that, be strong for everything's going to change. The difference between what we were and what we shall be, what we experienced under God's curse because of sin, and what we shall experience under the blessings of salvation in eternity, help us in the here and now. Strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 this side. 1 John chapter 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But when He appears, we shall be like Him. When Jesus appears, we shall be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Therefore, let the one who hopes in Him, or rather, the one who hopes in Him, purifies himself as He is pure. So, looking to the past and learning from it, looking forward to the future, we're able to rest in the moment 
in Jesus with hope in our hearts. Not afraid. Not weak. But the weak are now saying, I am strong. The power of God that strengthens also sustains. So when we are weak, He keeps us going so we can be strong again. Providing all necessary resource to press on in what He has called us. Thus He says, peace is sown. And that means it will bear fruit. And the peace that is sown as it bears fruit, we, we, we see that has implications tangibly. Vines are bearing fruit again. Fields are white for harvest. The heavens are watering the earth appropriate for its flourishing. And remember who he's talking to and what the context is. We needn't spiritualize this immediately. There's a spiritual meaning, to be sure. And there's a, uh, that meaning is located in Jesus. And there's an end times meaning, meaning, a last days meaning, an eternal kingdom meaning. That's how prophecy works. There are layers that, that he's pointing to different things. And Scripture, as you keep reading into the New Testament, unpacks all of that. But what he's saying now is to impoverished people, you're going to get paid. And to hungry people, you're going to have food. And that is good news. Because God is not only with us, but God is over us and for us. His power strengthens and sustains. He's saying, I am strong, so you can be strong. And and you can stay strong. Because I'm going to provide all that you need to sustain you. But I want to uh, show you the final two words from our message today. I will save you. That's right. I will save you. God has purpose to bring disaster. And God purposed to bring good. It's there. Verse 14. If you're like, oh, disaster is all our fault. God never has anything to do with that. Well, you're going to fall you know, short when it comes to explaining natural things that really don't have an obvious human connection. God has purposed to bring disaster. Verse 14, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, justice because of our rebellion against Him, because of our sin against Him, and just as I did that and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. We knew what it was to despair. We shall know what it is to be delivered. We knew what it was to feel like God hated us. We shall know what it feels like for God to love us. We knew what it was to be far and distant from God. But we shall know what it is for God to come and be with us. We knew what it was to to, to be castaways 
Rubbish! We shall know what it is for Him to set us apart and treasure us and keep us as a prized possession for His glory. He sets us apart for Himself in our identity. So we stand before God and the world in a position of righteousness. Because He has declared us righteous by making His home with us. Therefore, the world shall look at us and call us righteous. But He also sets us apart in our activity. And again, I really have a concern that sometimes people veer into, let's emphasize, you know, the, the, the work of Jesus on the cross and His righteousness applied to our account. And I can't help but wonder if sometimes they're, they're, um, they're, they're trying to get out of facing the realities of their sin. They're trying to present a, a cheap grace before us that, that saves us in our identity, but doesn't necessarily do anything for our activity. The Scripture is clear. He sets us apart. He sanctifies us in our identity and in our activity. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. The purpose of God. We've seen His presence and we've seen His power. But the purpose of God is to save us. Inside and out. Through and through. To set us apart in identity and activity. So that we are unique and distinct in every way. I don't want, want, want to cut too much into the next message. But... but um, the things that God loves, we love. And the things that God hates, we hate. We, because God is strong, we are strong. Because God does not even know fear, we can be unafraid. Because God hates lies and always and only speaks the truth, we speak the truth. Because God is a God of justice and peace. We are people of justice and peace. Because God loves truth. We hate lies and love truth. Because God loves peace, our hearts cry out in a world that's tearing itself apart for peace. God says, I will save you. And that you is not just a few of us. In fact, remember to whom it was originally spoken. It wasn't even spoken to you and me. Unless we have people of Jewish descent here, He did not have us in mind. He has the Jewish people in mind. He has Jerusalem in mind. He has Judah in mind. He has the exiles in mind. So why have I said us? Why have I said we throughout this? Why have I said He will save you as though that means something? It's there in the text. Verse 20. Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. People from all around the world are saying, we're going to seek the Lord. And, and um, they are included in these people that he says in verse 18, thus says the Lord, the fast of the fourth month, which they didn't ask about, the fast of the fifth month, which they did ask about, the fast of the, uh, the, the seventh month, the fast of the tenth month, 
Again, the tent, they didn't ask about that. But all of these fasts shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. God says, I'm going to take you from fasting to feasting. I'm going to give you a faith that feasts. And not just you, the Jewish people, but from all around the world, people are going to gather for the feast. They're going to say, I'm going to the house of the Lord. I myself am going. Come with me. And they'll entreat the favor of the Lord. They'll seek the grace of God in their life. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 23, in those days, ten men... Ten being a number of completion, also a number of the world, of humanity. Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There's more going on in this text, so much that I want to, to, to unpack. I'll have to tell you about it next time. But there, there was a, a, a Jew whom God was with in a special way. In a unique way. A distinct way. And he came to Jerusalem. And he rode on a donkey. And the crowds of people took off their coats and they brought palm branches in their hand and they waved them crying, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, by the way, is, is not a celebratory statement. It is a prayer of desperate need. It means, Lord, save And Jesus entered into the city to cries of Hosanna. And just a few moments later, through that, on the other side of that crowd, we're told there was a group of Greeks, shorthand for Gentiles. We don't know where they were from. We don't know what languages they spoke. We don't know what exactly had brought them to believe in the Lord, the God of Israel. But we know that they were there for the feast to seek favor from God. And they came to one of Jesus' disciples and they said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Why did they want to see Jesus? Because Jesus was with God, and God was with Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Lord has come to Zion. He's dwelt with His people. That week wouldn't turn out quite as the Jews who welcomed Jesus thought it would. The one to whom they cried, Hosanna, God save, could not save himself. He died on a cross, crucified. The most embarrassing, shameful, disgraceful way to die in their day. 
if not in human history. A naked man pinned up to bits of wood to bleed and choke his life out. Nothing saving about that. It's helpless, weak, foolish. Such a scandal, they didn't even, they, they, they didn't even, we don't have drawings of it except drawings of crucifixion that were meant to be profane. It was like when you see obscene graffiti in the city, that's, that's all that we have to talk about Jesus and about crucifixion in general. Jesus was crucified. But He was crucified to turn our fasting into feasting. He was crucified to take us from cries of Hosanna, God save, to hallelujah. So that we can stand before Him and say, You are worthy. You are holy. You are worthy to receive, O Lamb of God, all glory, honor, power, and praise. That's... That's the Jew that we take hold of today. We, take, we come to Him from every nation and we take hold of His garment and we say, God is with you. Cover us with this garment. Cover us with your righteousness. Bring us into the presence of God so that we might be saved because God is with you. He's not with us, but He's with you. And so I'm coming to you so you can bring me to Him. And He does that positionally. You're righteous. You're called faithful. You're called holy. You're called just. And He does that actively so that you actually become righteous, faithful, and just. Will you, will, 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 will you take hold of the robe of the garment of a Jew today? That Jew, Jesus, and say, God is with you. I want to be with God. Bring me to Him. There's more going on. But there's nothing less than that. I will save you. And that is the hope, yes, of Israel. And that is the hope of the world. It is our salvation he is our salvation. So we can feast. We can celebrate. We can be glad because our hope is in the Lord. Amen.